Hello, my friends. Welcome back to the podcast with me, Jonathan Puddle. This is episode 86. My guest on the show today is Pastor Derwin Gray. We had a really fun time. I, I hit it off with Derwin. I enjoyed his spirit and his heart. We talk in this episode all about what the Beatitudes have to say to us about living lives of meaning and purpose. We uh, took a bunch of themes out of uh, Derwin's book that came out in the summer, The Good Life, and it's it's a lot of fun kind of turning around our happiness and what, what we understand happiness to be to understanding what God's agenda and what is and what uh, what brings a kind of a lasting kingdom happiness. And it's rich and it's justice oriented and it means good things for all, not just you and I. It's a lot of fun. We, we do riff on justice and peace, and we got as well into the need for pastoral leadership from those who've been on the margins, um, and, and why so much of the white suburban church is not able to lead anymore. And uh, yeah, so I commend this to you. I commend Derwin to you. Great guy. Uh, here is our discussion. So, uh, Duran, you just told me that you've been on on vacation. Uh, mm-hmm. So you're you're heading you're heading home tomorrow. Mm-hmm. By the time this airs, you'll be back in the thick of it. What? Where are you sitting right now? Where's your heart right now? Like I watch the news and I read Twitter, and you're about to dive back into, you know, life in the midst of a global pandemic and posturing and uh, racial tension and everything. Where are you at right now? Uh, in Jesus and his kingdom. Um, the idea that we live in a conflict free reality is foreign to the new Testament, Mm -hmm. uh, all throughout from Genesis to revelation. We, we see that there are dark powers, and manifest themselves in sin and death rooted in idolatry. And so uh, this is where we would expect to be as the people of God. And um, one of the things that God in his providence, his sovereignty has been beautiful is that as a football player, I've been trained since seventh grade. You have a playbook, you have a purpose and circumstances don't determine that. And so when I became a believer, it was like, okay, God has a playbook. I have a role and a purpose within his kingdom and circumstances don't determine that. And so um, in a football game, you expect adversity. But I think as Western Christians, particularly affluent Western Christians, and if you make over 50,000 a year, you're affluent. uh, We are shocked by adversity as though it's like, oh my gosh, what has happened? And then part of it is a little bit of my frustration and how I want to be a prophetic witness is that I think the prosperity gospel has rooted itself within Western Christianity. And I don't mean the prosperity gospel as in the old school, name it, claim it, blab it, grab it. I mean it in the sense of Jesus is a divine butler Mm-hmm. And you cut, you follow him and everything's going to work out. Okay. Uh, like we seem to forget Luke nine twenty three. pick up your cross and follow me. 
when you lose your life, you'll find your life. And I think often we want to baptize Jesus into our American dream. We want to baptize Jesus into our Western idealism and know Jesus wants to baptize us and immerse us in his kingdom. And, you know, when, when I wrote the good life, I learned so much and, and, and I began to be transformed. And what I mean by that is, as I looked at the Beatitudes, a heart that's happy in Jesus is a life that's holy for his kingdom and a life that's holy for Jesus has a happy heart in him. And so the Beatitudes are a picture of what God's purpose for humanity is. And then if you look at Matthew uh, 5, 13, and 14, salt and light, people who are salt and light are poor in spirit. They mourn. They're humble. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're merciful. They're pure in heart. They're peacemakers. And as a result, they will be persecuted. And a lot of times in the West, American Christians think persecution is I can't go to my job and hold up my King James Bible and go repent. That's not persecution. Actually, persecution is flowing for the sake of Christ because of the beauty of Christ overflowing into your life. And so um, the kind of people that God uses to display his kingdom in the world are a happy, holy people because they find their happiness and holiness in him. And so that was a beautiful journey and discovery for me. And we're really positioning uh, my book at our church as a resource. Like it, 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 it became bigger the more I wrote it because I went, oh my gosh, this is Jesus's heart for humanity. Yes. And what's beautiful is he invites us into the happiness that the Trinity has experienced for all eternity mm-hmm. and we can manifest it on earth. Yes. Amen to that. Uh, I <laughs> I love that. I love I love how you wrap that up. I often when I preach, that's kind of like I'm like, all right. So we're gonna just close your eyes for a minute, and we're gonna go back to the time before time, and let's see if we can feel that never-ending, perfect, undulating love poured out between these three persons. And God's like, hey, you know what? This is so good that more people should experience it. Yes, yes. That salvation is an invitation into the love that God has shared before all eternity. And as you know, the the church fathers with John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. That word with in the Greek is pros, and it's a dynamic moving towards. And so the, er, the early church fathers said, what was the father, son, and spirit doing? What was Yahweh doing before creation? They were loving each other, this dance of love and salvation is the invitation to that dance. Yes. Yes, exactly. And that, that, I think that's a, makes a huge difference, right? Because if your starting point is, obe- is disobedience or, or like wretchedness um, or, or wrath, yeah, you can still find your way into salvation. Of course, uh, millions of believers have, but mm-hmm. uh, I think it does set us up for a different flavor in our journey. We rooted in that love. Yeah. You, you know, um, if, if we start with, uh, you know, all have sinned and the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life, salvation becomes more of a business transaction. Mm. Like we have to start with, and God created, and it was good. Mm. 
that salvation is the restoration of our goodness. You know, um, it, it is it is it is restoring what was lost, and He's the restorer. What He his righteous demands are met by his very own righteousness, and it's given to us as a gift to participate in. And so often uh, we start with Christianity of, well, right and wrong, do's and that, and it's an issue of life and death. You know, you can live from the tree of life or from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when you look at those options, knowing what's good and evil isn't a bad thing. The bad thing was I wanted to determine what is good and evil. I want to live my life versus living from the life, uh, the tree of life. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at Paul's allusion in Galatians 5, you know, the fruit of the spirit, it's going right back to the garden, that the life that God demands is the life that God gives and we can receive it and live in it by faith. But there's always a temptation of, well, I want to know what's good and what's evil versus I can flow from the very life of God, which is wisdom, which is love, which is beauty. And so often in Western Christianity, I feel like we've reduced this beautiful mystery to a business and corporation and techniques and formulas and and you know we we mix in some TED Talk stuff and we mix in business principles, which all truth is God's truth. But when the majesty and the beauty of Jesus is turned into a to like a business transaction, uh, like Walmart, there's a problem. Instead of this this loving relationship, this new covenant that we enter into, where it becomes not my will be done, but Thy will be done. And when thy will is done in our lives, we become the people that God has created us to be. Yes. Yes. Amen. Okay. So here, here's my first reaction. As I began to read this book, The Good Life, what Jesus teaches about finding true happiness, about, I think probably partway through your introduction, and, and uh, I just, I just... Sorry, there's no introduction. There's a forward for oh no, the, yeah, chasing shadows is basically an introduction, right? Your yeah. first, your first chapter. Mm-hmm. My, my my first thought was, this feels like a book for America. This feels like a book for American Christians to help them uh, reset. And then I thought, what a judgmental Canadian thought for me to have. Uh, how how typical of of me and 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 my country folk. And then I thought, ah, that means it's probably for me. And so as I uh, began to dive in, two things happened simultaneously. Uh, One, your your love of Jesus and just, you know, the the way that you uh, seek to embody him in your own life and in your words uh, was compelling, beautifully compelling. I mean, I, I, I love the Lord. I have been a believer my whole life and went through a major personal revival about 10 some years ago where I just fell in love with Jesus and everything changed for me, you know, Mm -hmm. like, and so I taste that, uh, you know, that language of a, of a brother who's a lover uh, drawing me back in. And at the same time, I was frustrated because I thought to myself, hasn't this always been the gospel? 
hasn't mm-hmm. this always been the invitation? This is not new news. Mm-hmm. Why, why are we so poorly transformed? Why are so few of us deeply transformed? And so I, I've been reading and, and feeling agitated and feeling in love and feeling enamored and drawn in. And I, and the one sense I know the only solution to my frustrations is back with the Lord himself. But, but I mean, you're, you're a pastor. You, 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 you do this work. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you know, I think you and I are kindred spirits in that because there are times where I'll write something or preach something and believers go, man, that's just, and I'm like, no, this is elementary. Like this is Christianity. So what I would, what I would say to, I think that angst is a prophetic edge because prophecy is speaking the truth of God, proclaiming the truth of God and prophets. When uh, truth of God is not proclaimed, there's this agitation because we care about the glory of God. Now the balance is, is grace and truth. And so uh, what I think has happened, Jonathan, is uh, the spiritual capitalism of Christianity is, I say this often, is that a lot of times, and I'm speaking primarily to believers, is we want Jesus to be a means to an end instead of Jesus being the end. We want to use Jesus for our purposes instead of worshiping him because that is the purpose. Mm. And so when you go back to Exodus, which is the narrative framework for uh, biblical salvation, it's this theme of liberation and freedom, that we are the people of God. We're enslaved by a greater Pharaoh called sin and death. The great enemy in the Bible is sin and death. Not, I don't have a job. Not, I didn't get my great boyfriend or girlfriend. Not that I didn't get the American dream. No, it's sin and death. Jesus came to defeat sin and death. And so in Exodus 4.23, Yahweh tells Moses, in essence, tell them, tell Pharaoh to let my people go so that they can worship me. Yes. And I'm thankful that we live in a generation where young p- people love worship songs. That's a part of it. But true worship, Romans 12:1, I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy. In view of God's mercy, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, in context, of course, he's speaking to the multi-ethnic churches in Rome, Jews and Gentiles surrendering what they thought was their rights. They were becoming living dead things, dead to the things that were at enmity to God and to each other and alive to God and alive to each other in Christ. And so, but it's in view of God's mercy, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You know, uh, do not be conformed to what be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And, and so we have been set free to worship. Mm-hmm. And for those listening who may not be followers of Christ, God is not a spiritual narcissist where he needs worship. By the, def- by the very definition of his majestic beauty and his holiness, worship is like us needing oxygen to breathe. He can't help but be worshiped because he is the great I am. And so we have been created tethered to the reality that 
as we worship, we live, but as we pursue idols, we die. And I think there's a malignancy within Western Christianity uh, and probably around the world. I just don't have enough experience, but I'll speak from my context. There's a malignancy to want to use Jesus instead of worship him. And sadly, a lot of pulpits present Jesus as a transaction. It's like, well, if you want peace, come to him. Well, peace, what do you, what do you, you don't, you don't mean peaceful circumstances because we're in the middle of a war. You must mean reconciliation with God vertically, reconciliation with your neighbor horizontally, which makes the sign of a cross. And the cross is not conflict free. It's God's resolution and power in the midst of conflict. And so what I wanted to do in the good life and what I want to do as a pastor and the people that I want to shape is for us to understand that Jesus is the great treasure. Mm-hmm. That, that if all he ever did for us was set us free from the power of sin and death, that's enough. And that when he's enough, then we begin to get aligned to his assignment. Mm, yes. I had, uh, I had David Kinnaman on the show from Barna uh, yeah. a little while back, and, and we were talking about his, his Exiles book. And, uh, and he said it's, it's sort of like, uh, he, he, according to their stats, it's about 10%, I think, of those raised in the faith meet Barna's definition of resilient disciples today, at least within a certain demographic. Mm. And he was saying, it's like we've inoculated people. We've given them just Mm -hmm. enough Jesus so they don't get the full virus. Um, Mm -hmm. There's enough culture. There's enough problems solved. Uh, And you even described one of the individuals, the stories that you told in here, you know, you said this guy had been in church for 30 years, but, but it hadn't, hadn't taken deep, deep root. That, that, I find that so fascinating. And I think partly it's, you know, I live in Canada. I was born in New Zealand. I've lived in Europe for years. You know, most of my life has been in, in nations that are further down the post-Christendom mm-hmm. journey than the United States, right? And so, I mean, out here, it's kind of like, man, why go to church if you're not in love with Jesus? Like, you mean there's two days to a weekend? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, well so, 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 you know, one of the one of the things that I've seen, particularly in the southeast of the United States of America, is uh, church is where you go and you can meet business associates. You can you can complete deals. Um, it's like something that you do culturally. So they see church many as a place that they go to instead of a people that they are that the ecclesia is a called out of people. We've been called out of the kingdom of darkness and to the kingdom of the beloved son in his light. And so there's still this aspect of church is where I go. It's not who I am, but then also, uh, gosh, and I don't want this to sound judgmental. I don't want it to sound harsh, but there's a lot of bad preaching. And what I mean by bad preaching, I don't mean a lack of being able to put words together that sound good. What I mean is apostolic, Christocentric, spirit-enabled preaching about the kingdom of God. We preach, I think in in my context, and I would say in the Western context, a lot of preaching 
is really do's and don'ts, how to fix your life. And then at the end of the message, you go, and if you would like to have your sins forgiven, of course, you haven't even talked about sin, or if you have talked about sin, it's not in the context of understanding that the problem is not sin. The problem is idolatry. Jesus replaces your idol, makes you born again, and you live from a new life. A lot of preaching is do's and don'ts. Don't do this. Be nice to your wife. Don't do do's and don'ts, do's and don'ts. And Jesus is like background noise in an elevator. You know, have you ever been in an elevator and people are talking and you have the background noise? So Jesus has become like background noise and we don't explore nor communicate to the congregation all the beautiful majesty of what he's accomplished because one, a lot of pastors are afraid. They're people pleasing. They're, they're, they're scratching ears. Um, many are like politicians. What is it that blowing in the wind versus no, here's the gospel. It is timeless. Jesus is always relevant. How do I bring to bear what he's accomplished in the situation right here, right now? And bigger is not better. God has, God has blessed us with a big church. Uh, now that we've been online with COVID, you know, we're probably, and with our TBN show, we're probably reaching 100,000 people every Sunday. I'm grateful. I'm thankful. Praise God. Um, but a lot of times churches are big, not because of robust theology, but because of easy believism and Jesus is a divine butler. But what's sad is oftentimes American evangelicalism rewards that. And we wonder why the church is anemic. Yeah, for sure. There's so many uh, names that I feel like I could drop even in this con cultural moment that I, you know, let's just not. Um, okay. So what happened then in your life? Like what happened to you that reset this course that, that put you on this, you know, this different path? Yeah. So uh, I grew up in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, I grew up on a, in, a, in an area called the West Side. And I didn't realize how poor we were until I became an adult. Uh, but, you know, it was rough. My mom was 16 when she was pregnant with me. My dad was 17. They did the best that they could. They both had various struggles. And so my grandparents primarily raised me. A lot of family dysfunction that I had normalized. Uh, what I did not understand then, but what I understand now is when I became a young adult and I would come back home from college or when I was in the National Football League, I would come back home. And if I'm on the plane, as soon as we got near San Antonio, when the captain said it, my face would begin to twitch. Mm -hmm. Is I had a form of PTSD from all of the chaos that I grew up around, but I had normalized that. So anyway, at about age 13, um, that's when I made a conscious decision that football was going to be my way out. And so I worked really hard, played at a great high school. Uh, this magic thing called puberty kicked in and with, combined with the hard work, I got big and strong and fast and I was determined and became one of the best players in the state of Texas and uh, accepted a football scholarship to, to BYU. Brigham Young University, which is a Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, a.k.a. the Mormon Church, which it makes no sense for a non-Mormon 
black guy to go to a 98.5% Mormon school that's predominantly white, uh, but God and his sovereignty knew what he was doing. And so went there and uh, second semester of my freshman year, uh, met my wife-to-be. Uh, we've been together ever since, 30 years together, 28 years married. Now, if you no- notice, I haven't talked about church because we didn't go to church. We didn't attend church. Um, and so my God was football. A God or idol is anything that gives you affirmation, identity, and mission. Football gave me that. So my wife was a high achiever. I was a high achiever. We were beloved in college. I got drafted to play for the Colts in Indianapolis. We moved to Indianapolis, and then reality sets in. My dream of going to the NFL uh, was not the heaven I thought it was. The first year was miserable. By my third year, I was a team captain, playing good. But the, at the end of that third year, uh, it was like this existential crisis. It was like, there's got to be more. Like, I've worked this hard. Now, I couldn't articulate it the way I am now. Sure. But there was this void of, okay, I accomplished this. I'm sending money home to my family that I love to help them but it's not helping. It's making it worse. It's never enough. I'm never doing enough. Uh, I couldn't forgive myself. I couldn't love my wife the way she deserved to be loved. I couldn't forgive my dad. Um, I couldn't forgive. It it was just this, it was just this storm that came in. Then I started getting injured. Mm -hmm. And as a professional athlete, if you start getting injured, your career is winding down. And there's always this fear of who would I be if I couldn't play ball? Because I grew up as a compulsive stutterer. So being a preacher was never a thought. And, uh, you know, in God's grace, there was a teammate named Steve Grant. His nickname was the Naked Preacher because every day after practice, he'd take a shower, dry off, wrap a towel around his waist. And he'd ask my teammates, do you know Jesus? And over a five-year process of having relationship with him and hearing the gospel from him, and what was going on in my personal life. And as my body was breaking down on August 2nd, 1997, it's my fifth year in the NFL. We're at training camp at Anderson University in Anderson, Indiana. Uh, I went to my dorm room after lunch and I called my wife on the phone and I said, I want to be more committed to you and I want to be committed to Jesus. And that's when I was born again. Like I, I literally, you know, kind of like John Wesley says, I had a warming of the heart. Like I had a bodily reaction. I just sensed and felt and knew that I was loved. And I haven't been the same since. I developed a ferocious appetite to study the Bible, to read everything. I used to hate reading books, let alone one day I'd write books. I used to hate it. But when I came to Jesus, like I need to know him. Like I just, the same drive and determination I had for football, the Holy Spirit had geared it towards Christ. And, And so um, not growing up with a church background in many ways was helpful. It's probably served you well. <laughs> because all my wife and I would do would just read the Bible. And we were just enamored and overwhelmed with Jesus. Like, this is unbelievable. And we would meet Christians and we would talk to them like, did you know? Did you know that the righteousness of Jesus was given to us that literally his blood not only forgives us, but makes us as righteous as God. Did you know that? And they would look look at us like, no. And why does it matter? And I'm like, oh my goodness. And so 
Um, that's kind of what happened to us. And my wife has a ferocious appetite too. She's an incredible um, leader. We, we, we co-planted Transformation Church together. She's working on her master's now at Wheaton. I just mm-hmm. finished my doctorate. And so both of us, uh, both of us are just athletes that love the Lord and that are using our giftedness and all the years of that type of training to equip a people. Um, but also, we believe the best form of evangelism is discipleship, mm-hmm. that healthy disciples, a disciple is a student, and we're trying to become like the teacher, J- Jesus. And what mattered to him? God's glory, seeking and saving the lost, justice. So love God, love your neighbors, you love yourself reflects the law and the prophets. And what's beautiful is God's grace gives us the power to do that. So that's that's kind of what happened to us in a nutshell. Thanks for sharing that. I like that. I'd caught bits and pieces, you know, obviously in your book, but uh, I definitely had been intrigued by, you know, how you ended up at Brigham Young of all places. Yeah. But yeah, look at the work of the yeah, Lord. Yeah, you, you know, if... if, if um, my, my thought process did as an 18 year old was I want to get as far away from Texas as possible. I want to get a good education and I want to be on TV and BYU is a great school back then coach Lavelle Edwards. He's a, he's a college football hall of fame coach and BYU was on TV all the time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it gave me an opportunity to, do that. And it worked out well. They've, they've got giant banners of me at the stadium. Uh, whenever I go back with my kids, they go, dad, these <laughs> people treat you so good. And they treat us good. I'm going, cause you're with me. Like I'm a, I'm, I'm one of the OG goats of BYU football, man. <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, and it's not the older you get, like, so I'm 49. If somebody would have told me at 18, 31 years ago, that there would be banners of me at the stadium. Um, I recently had an article published in BYU Magazine. And personally, I've never seen a non-Mormon have an article published in a Mormon magazine for the entire school to go around the world. And so God has given me incredible favor with my Mormon family and friends. And I'm a huge advocate for BYU in that even if you're not LDS, There's tons of Bible-believing churches, but I think that non-LDS people going to BYU adds to them. Mm -hmm. And so now God has given me incredible favor with the LDS community, um, and they know where I stand, and I know where they stand, but when you can be charitable and loving, you don't have to be uh, (laughs) at enmity, you know? I'll take a quick pause to thank my Patreon supporters. My latest supporter is Cheryl. Thank you, Cheryl. You join a team of folks who keep this show on the air, who support me and my work, who feed my family. Thank you so much to each and every one of you who are part of this community and making this possible. If you are loving the show and you'd like to join us, if you'd like to become a patron of this show, you can go to Patreon dot com slash Jonathan Puddle. You can also go to JonathanPuddle.com and you'll find links to it from there. And I would love to have you. It'd be, a, it'd be great to connect. I You'll gain access to cool behind the scenes kind of stuff and book studies I've done and various different resources that are just for those who pay. So thank you so much to all of you. 
Also, a reminder that my book, You Are Enough, Learning to Love Yourself the Way God Loves You, comes out very, very soon. It actually releases September 22. You can go and pre-order it today, and there are a bunch of pre-order bonuses if you do order before the launch date. So you can go to jonathanpuddle.com slash you are enough. You'll find it there. And uh, yeah, download a free sample, uh, test out some of the meditations, give it a try. I think that you will find it's something unlike anything you've read before. Let's get back to the show. One of, one of the things that I'm l- learning is this. The more secure you are in your beliefs, the, lef- the less angry you get uh, with the beliefs of others. Mm, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you know when, when you bump into someone who has an ax to grind... And, and I, I just thinking about this, actually, just you know, I'm just going to be transparent. When I think about the things I've written or the things I've said that I'm the most militant about, it's often because it's the thing I'm trying to understand myself right then and there. So I throw more words at it. I throw more emotion at it because I know I need to get it. But then it yeah. often isn't kind to, to the listener. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, at the end of the day, right, is that we can have our perspective, but if our perspective isn't grace covering our truth, then what have we done? Cause we don't want to win battles. We want to win people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, um, I'm, I'm very confident in my theological framework. Um, but I want to know those who I differ with so that I can be charitable to their perspectives. And what I found is, Going going to a Mormon school immediately when my wife and I became followers of Christ, my Mormon family and friends told me I was wrong. So I had to study not only historic biblical Christianity, but I've got, oh gosh, probably a hundred book library of Mormon theology. And that has actually helped me clarify what I believe and why. And then it even makes me more charitable within the broad range of Protestantism as well as uh, Catholics, because I under understand it. So you know what essentials are, you know what, you know, hey, that that's that's not a salvific issue. Mm. You know? I was intrigued for sure when I was reading your bio and I thought, okay, you've 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 studied, you know, at Southern Evangelical Seminary, uh-huh. and then you've studied under Scott McKnight, and you've got this whole I'm like, I love that. That's that's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you 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 know, um because of my background, apologetics was very, very important to me. Like apologetics is so helpful. I pray that every follower of Jesus meets someone from a different worldview and get intellectually just destroyed because it'll make you go back and study more. And so studying under Dr. Geisler was helpful in that Thomistic philosophy really clarifies how you think. It helps you in hermeneutics of the text. And you do have the classical understanding of apologetics and the theology proper. Now, as far as issues of like justice and multi-ethnic church, I learned that stuff on my own. But then studying under Scott McKnight, you, I, I learned first century Second Temple Uh, Jewish context, a new perspective. And so uh, what I love is having a philosophical apologetic mind, but also New Testament scholarship. And you combine those with my background as a black man 
uh, and understanding multi-ethnic church in justice. I'm just very, very thankful for the people that the Lord has brought into my life to shape me. Yeah. Well, dude, I don't mean to sound flattering, but there, there is a, there's like a, how do I put it? So, so many of the people that have been leaders in my life who I love and I respect and I have followed, I can feel in the spirit and in my gut that many of them don't seem to have tools robust enough for this cultural moment. If yeah. uh, it, it doesn't feel like fresh manna and it grieves me even to say that. And, and it's hard. And it's been, it's, I felt this last year, two years, three has been a very difficult time as I seek to teach and lead and, and recognize that often what I'm being fed, I can just tell isn't what we need and isn't yeah. going to bear lasting fruit. And just hearing those influences and, and the, what's come together in your life and reading the way you put Jesus on display. And it's not this Jesus that I've often fed in the past, right? It's like, you don't need a therapist. You just need Jesus. You don't need this. You just need Jesus. What well, you are centering on Jesus, but, but the way that Jesus informs your life, the way that Jesus mm-hmm. moves you. And you talked earlier about mission and how Jesus moves you and motivates you. It's, we need it, man. Amen. And, and I'm just, I'm thankful. I really do believe that in the midst of all of this wreckage and sadly, uh, peaceful protest has been hijacked by, uh, uh, you know, Antifa, radical fringes on the left, white supremacists and alt-right on the right. And the marches that I've been in have been peaceful. But this is a prime moment because you have a president that loves to throw gasoline and gaslight his base. Uh, But I do think if the church, that if we can get back to Jesus, and when I say Jesus, his name unfolds the beautiful mystery. You know, like how difficult is it for us? And, And that Jesus was very clear. His messianic mandate was a quotation of Isaiah 61. He says, listen, uh, I have come to preach the good news to the poor, to the blind, the captive. Uh, He talks about the year of Jubilee, like justice is not thorn. People who tend to be anti-justice are the people who benefit from the system that oppresses uh, others. Conservatives do not do a good job with systematic thinking liberals tend to make everything structural and miss personal accountability, where I think Jesus does both. Just for example, when we look at the temple, Jesus says, hey, this is my father's house. He turned it into a den of thieves. He's quoting Isaiah 56, 7, in that the temple has always been about God using Israel as his missionary people to bring the Gonim, to bring the Gentiles, because God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12 that I'm going to give you a big old multi-ethnic family. And so the temple was always to be a light, right? And so when Jesus comes, he ratifies this covenant through his redemptive work. And so God has always wanted a family, and this family is to be a multi-ethnic family where Classism, 
racism and sexism has been crucified. That's why Galatians 3.28 says there's neither Jew nor Greek, meaning Jews are not better than Greeks, Greeks are not better than Jews, and Greek is synonymous with Gentile, meaning that we don't move towards color blindness, but color blessedness, mm. that we celebrate our diversity. Free and slave meant rich and poor. Male and female meant women are equal with men, co-heirs in Christ, because we're all children of Abraham, verse 29 of Galatians chapter 3. And that's a portrait of what a kingdom society looks like. And sadly, and this is one of the things that gets my prophetic edge sharpened is sadly in the West, we have churches that are proclaimed as some of the greatest churches in the world, and they're utterly ignorant of understanding multi-ethnic ministry and justice. How is it that a church can be considered one of the greatest in the world and you've done nothing for racial reconciliation? Yeah. But we have a lot of campuses and people are saved. Well, saved to do what? Yeah. Because as I read the Bible, saved people become agents of reconciliation, ambassadors of the king, not just consumers who invite their friends to, to, to come. And what's interesting is you look at this cultural moment, particularly here in the United States of America, the people getting interviewed that are pastors are not the people that pastors flock to, to hear them speak at conferences for the latest church growth technique. Yeah. So Christians are impressed with other Christians and the unbelievers are looking for people who are actually doing the redemptive work. Yeah. And so a few years ago, the BBC interviewed me because they heard about what we were doing. And I said, that's the influence I want to have. Uh, let me, let me say this. Let me, uh, Make sure I say this the right way. We need the days to end where people go to hear other pastors talk about how they can get big suburban homogeneous churches that are basically preaching a watered down version of the prosperity gospel. And we need leaders who have pastored on the margins. We need leaders who understand what it means to experience oppression and you're still continuing to preach and teach and develop a pe pe people. We need leaders who can equip the saints for the work of ministry despite their environment. And I think that the suburban church growth Christianity movement, and then a lot of times the emergent movement was just white guys who were frustrated <laughs> with the seeker model. And it's like, dude, we're, we are, we are emergent, but we're just, all white guys who are angry at the church growth model. What have we really done? It's true, man. It's totally true. It's totally true. It's totally true. It's, I don't, I, yeah. I, I, I mean, I was, go ahead. When I was, when I was deconstructing and going through a lot of this stuff myself, you know, and having sitting over a beer and, and chewing through atonement and, and all this kind of stuff. And, and it was very important in my own life, but I remember I said, I had the, incredible honor mm -hmm. of interviewing Dr. Christina Cleveland on here, you know, and, and she had gone on record as saying, you know, some of these white guys are busy discussing atonement, but we're trying to stay alive. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, it, it was years ago, this, you know, missing, 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 like Paul missing. I'm like, 
you do understand Paul was a Jewish nationalist who met Jesus and became a multi-ethnic church planter. He spent his time collecting money for the poor church in Jerusalem and building multi-ethnic churches because God made a covenant with Abraham. And I've had them look at me like, hmm? you know how the dog goes, hmm? So it's like, no, you're not being missional. And, and, and you know what else is really interesting? is, and I got this from Barna, is if you look at the people in America who've been more faithful to what we would describe as biblical Christianity, it's Black Christians. They read the Bible more. They believe in uh, Jesus, the deity of Christ more. And it's like, these are going to be the people who are leading it because as America becomes more post-Christian, which is good because it's going to weed out the terrors. I, I think that's what's happening in our election cycle now, like character, integrity, forget that. We want power, man. Right, for and sure. I remember, I remember the Republican platform used to be family values, finance, financial uh, responsibility, you know, uh, all that stuff. That's that's gone now. And so I think what you're seeing now is that's the the tares are going to get moved up, the wheat is going to rise, but I think it's going to be minority wheat that is actually leading the way because we can say, hey, I know what it's like to be marginalized. You're going to be okay. Jesus has sustained us. He'll sustain you too. When everybody was talking about being missional, the black church and Latino, already missional, you know, and Christianity around the world is becoming more and more brown. By 2050, one in three Christians will be a Nigerian woman. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, that would make sense. That's wild. But I love Western, it. But Western Christians have no idea. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of times our privilege blinds us to our need. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Dude, yeah, actually, I was just flipping through one of the one of the readings, uh, Happy Other Persecuted, because I wanted to see where, you know, kind of how you unpack that. And you made this this little point that I don't think was a major thing, but it got some stuff going in my mind where, you know, you're talking about making disciples of all nations and and clarifying that to all ethnicities. And it, and, and then you said, you know, not only, you know, the, the Jews had had been subjugated. So this is kind of like go and disciple the people who've, who've terrorized you. Yeah. But then I was thinking, too, I mean, I mean, the core of their belief, especially as they began to stray more and more from their original mandate, was like, it's us and no one else. Like, we yeah. are the chosen people. And I thought, man, is it isn't even that simple commission, the great commission, you know, which we which we hold on to as this evangelical hallmark of are you a Christian or not, right there is saying it's not exclusive to you, my friends. No, you, you know, and I think that's where theology is so important, right? As I have studied the text and continue to st- study the text, is that election has nothing to do with um, who's in and who's out. Election is kind of the last name of the people who are in, who have a mission. Isaiah 49.6 says that the Jews were to be a light to the Gentiles. And so when you look throughout the the Bible, by the way, this is really fun. When you look throughout the Bible, the first great commission was when God said, in the beginning was the heavens and earth, and he created. The second great commission is go therefore and multiply Adam and Eve. 
And then we get to the third one, Abraham, go leave your land. And then Jesus comes and Jesus is the better, he's the better Israel. And he fulfills what Israel was supposed to do. Theologically, the nation of Israel was supposed to do what Adam did, but they failed. They they did exactly what Adam did. So Jesus comes, and for the listener, this is actually quite beautiful. Um, when you look at Christ, as a little boy, he has to flee to Egypt. Why? Because a madman was trying to kill the kids. Well, Moses, a madman, was trying to kill the Jewish baby. So Jesus comes out of Egypt to the promised land. He's tested in the wilderness the same three ways that Israel is. He comes out of it faithful, and what does he do? He gets 12 disciples to make the 12 new tribes of Israel. And so we as the church are this beautiful continuation of this glorious story that Israel now has Jews and Gentiles in it, that we, the people of God, Jews and Gentiles. And it's, it's this incredible story. And what we say at Transformation Church all the time is this is if you don't know God's story, you're going to try to put God in your story. Mm. Yeah, for sure. One more question, because uh, we're almost out of time, but I'm having such a good time, Derwin. I'm so thankful for this time, man. <laughs> Me too. Thank I'm you. Like, can, we, can we go for another hour? Um, <laughs> part two? Well, I gotta. I have to go <laughs> write and work on my next book. My, my deadline is due in um, December. Well, that's very exciting. Thank I wonder you. if you could uh, just reiterate... Um, about the happiness and the, and the yeah. word, because you talked about that word blessed and happy. Yeah. What, what, just for, for, for the listener, what Derwin's done here in, in Good Life is he's pulled out the Beatitudes and he's gone through each one to essentially say like, happy are the sad, happy are the humble. And yeah. when I read through your chapters, I was a little bit like, hmm, all right, let's see. I, I, it, this really, <laughs> it's really important to me how he defines happy yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and how honest he's willing to be. But yeah. your, your honesty is, is, is solid. It's Jonathan Puddle approved. <laughs> oh, well, thank you very much. Uh, you, you know, so, so, so let me start with, with this, right? So, so Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, it's actually a hill looking over the Sea of Galilee, but it's very much reminiscent of Moses when he went up to the mountain and came down, right? So Jesus is recapitulating Moses and he's clarifying what it looks like to love God and to love your neighbor as you love yourself, okay? And so it's astonishing that when Jesus begins to teach the kingdom, he starts with a happiness manifesto. The word blessed is the Greek word makaros, and it means happy, a state of well-being. And so Jesus, in essence, is saying, happy are these kinds of people, but it's not the happiness that we think. The happiness that we pursue is more about good things happening to us, and God's happening. happiness is this. God is making us good for the world. Mm. That's happiness. And if I can kind of conclude with this story to summarize it. So my son, uh, Jeremiah, in 2018, was one of the top high school football players in the nation. I mean, he was just beautiful. I mean, he's 6'2", 210, fast, strong. I mean, just just exceptional. So, uh, and and he worked hard. So we're playing in the state championship game. 
First quarter, one of his teammates gets blocked into his lower leg. It shatters the lower part of his leg and it tears the ligaments in his ankle. So when he's down on the ground, it's every parent's worst nightmare. But one of the good things is having played football, I've been right where he was. I knew he was hurt bad. I knew his game was over. So the coach calls me down. I jump down. I go to him. The doctors and the medical staff are around him. And I make my way to my son. And like I've done with him since he was a little boy, I got down on a knee. A tear was coming down his eye. I put my hand on his chest and I rubbed his forehead. And I said, son, I am so proud of you. Man, I love you so much. I said, you literally have given your body for your team. Man, I'm proud of you. So we have this moment. We carry him to the sideline. The crowd's making noise. At this point, his ankle's about three or four sizes than it normally is. And he's laying on a bench. His ankle's propped up. And like I said, the game's going on. The crowd is loud. And he and I have this dad-son moment. And on the inside, I'm hurting because that's your son. Yeah. And he looks at me with a smile and he goes, dad, God is so good. I said, what? He goes, dad, God is so good. I said, son, what do you mean? He goes, well, I could have got hurt in the first game. Or I could have got hurt really bad. And I'm going, bro, do you see your ankle? (laughs) And he just starts praising God in the midst of that. And on the inside, I start praising God. And we have this father-son moment with the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. And I'm going, this is what happiness looks like. And if I can think of an attribute, it's blessed are the pure at heart. Here's this 18-year-old kid who his leg is shattered, ankles, he's in in pain. He can't be out there with his boys. And he's with his dad saying how good God is. And that's the happiness that God has created us for, is that our circumstances do not determine us, but the God who's with us, he's Emmanuel, with us in the midst of the circumstance, loving us, being present. I will never forget that moment. And uh, it was catalytic in my son's own life, just to continue the story, surgery, rehab, all this stuff. He goes to a college called Wake Forest. He's the fifth highest recruit in the history of the school. I mean, they have big plans for him. He's not even a hundred percent, but he's playing good. He's playing hard. And three days before camp was the end, he calls his mom and I and says, mom, dad, I'm really good at football, but I don't love it. I think God is calling me to learn foreign languages and to leverage business in Europe for the gospel. I want to go to Europe, work in the business world, and use that as a platform to be a missionary. And you know what we said? Come home. So he came home, taught himself Norwegian in eight months, majoring in German and political science with a minor in linguistics. And now he's a student at the University of Montana. Beautiful. So yeah, that's the good life. Not that your son made the biggest play of the game. No, that in the midst of a broken leg, 
He's saying that God is good and he's getting clarity of who God's called him to be. So at the end of the day, this is what it comes down to is we love him because he first loved us. Yeah. Amen. Darwin, would you, would you pray for us? I'd be honored to. Uh, Holy Spirit, we thank you that your spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are indeed sons of God, that we are in the Father's beloved Christ Jesus. His, his life that he lived, the perfection was for us. His death on the cross was an exchange for us. Not only are we forgiven, but we're, but we're made new through the power of his resurrection. I pray, Father, that Jesus would be our greatest treasure. He would be our greatest heart's delight. And that we would be a people after your own heart because you've showed us how big and beautiful your heart is to us. May the graciousness and kindness that you extended to us be extended through us. May the healing that took place on the cross heal our hearts so that we can become wounded healers in a world that is desperately hurting. I thank you for my new friends on this podcast. I thank you for Jonathan. Uh, You're beautiful, Lord, and we appreciate you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Derwin. Friends, make sure you go and order Derwin's book. It's called The Good Life, What Jesus Teaches About Finding True Happiness. The wonderful Beth Moore wrote the foreword. You can find it linked in the show notes, and you'll find it also in my Amazon store, which you can find at amazon.com slash shop slash Jonathan Puddle. And you'll find the same at amazon.ca and amazon.co.uk. Remember as well that my book, You Are Enough, Learning to Love Yourself the Way God Loves You. It's a 30-day devotional. comes out very, very soon. It's trauma-informed. It draws from body and breath work, meditation, contemplative prayer, uh, a whole bunch of different spiritual traditions, the Enneagram, uh, parts work, psychotherapy. It is designed to help you uh, face yourself with loving compassion and start to love yourself the way God has always loved you. Simple, easy to apply practices over 30 days or more, however long you like, but it's 30 readings. You can go and download a free sample of that today, and it'll be out very, very soon. Thanks for listening, my friends. Go follow Derwin, go buy his book, go buy my book, and have a wonderful day.